This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Violence at a youth correctional facility in Colorado Springs has been unusually high in recent years. Meanwhile, in Pueblo, a home for people with severe disabilities has been under federal investigation for improper behavior by staff. These are among the challenges Reggie Vika faces. He leads the Colorado Department of Human Services. Vika has also been praised for several initiatives, including new efforts to prevent child abuse. And Reggie, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Ryan. It's great to be with you. And let's start with the the troubles at youth correctional facilities. So there are about a dozen of them across the state. This is for kids awaiting a court hearing or who are serving sentences. A recent audit found that to discipline kids, staff are overusing what are called seclusions to isolate them from the rest of the population. Lawyers have said that these can last for as long as a month. And state policy is that they're only to be used in rare circumstances. What are you doing to cut down on the number of seclusions at these facilities? Well, Colorado's uh, policy on seclusion for kids in youth corrections is one of the most progressive in the country. We're really proud of that. We changed it, our policy, in October of 2015. The audit you're referring to, uh, the state auditors came in in December, I believe it was, of last year and evaluated how we were doing on these new policies that we had put in place. Imagine rolling out to 10 facilities that serve some 500 kids across the state, over a 1,000 staff trying to do ways of doing business, you're always going to have some bumps along the road. And I think that's really what the audit identified was ways that we could better uh, document, uh, clarify our policies, advance training, and so forth. And we've already, I'm proud to say, have implemented the recommendations that came from the state audit. But back to seclusion. Our use of seclusion is one of the most progressive in the entire country. Uh, we are not one of the those states that places kids in administrative segregation or in a locked seclusion room and leaves them there for days at a time. We only use that type of isolation in an emergency situation and only have kids in isolation until the emergency is over. The average length uh, of stay in a seclusion is an hour and a half. The most frequent time period is about 45 minutes. And so uh, our use of seclusion is actually very, very low. That compares to, I think, the national average is about 15 hours per uh, seclusion episode. 15 hours. What is the longest you've seen lately in Colorado? Uh, Well, we have a new law in place that uh, was passed in this last session that uh, if seclusion needs to last for more than four hours, there are a series of checks and balances all the way up to having to go get a court order. Now, we've only used that uh, situation I think two times since this new law went into place where we've asked a judge to allow us to keep a youth in seclusion longer than uh, than eight hours. Could this be a question of vocabulary? That is, if staff calls this a timeout or something like that, can you skirt the new rules? Yeah, it's a great question, Ryan. You know, <clears throat> any of us who have raised teenagers, uh, anytime a teenager gets unruly, it's fairly common for us as parents to say, hey, chill out, go to your room, Right. In my world in youth corrections, when we tell our teenagers to chill out and go to their room, it's called a seclusion, particularly if the door closes and all of our doors lock because it's a correctional facility. That's considered a seclusion. And it's really challenged our staff and our leadership in the Division of Youth Corrections to think about and develop new strategies of managing youth behaviors 
besides telling a kid to go to their room and chill out for a while, uh, because that's a tool that um, is now very prescriptive and should be used in a very limited circumstance. Of course, the safety and the mental health of the youth are uh, a priority for you, but so is the safety of staffers. That's exactly right. And they, too, have to consider what to do if a youth is violent. So without the tool that you had before the reforms related to seclusions, how can you guarantee the, the safety of, of staff and, and, and residents as well? So we're, we're being, our staff are being very much more proactive. It's about developing relationships with kids. It's about using... Shouldn't it have, shouldn't it have always been about that? Always was. But we used to have practices before where we might program in uh, a youth who has violent behaviors. We might use seclusion, put them out of the unit, isolate them as a preventative measure. Well, we've taken that away because now the state statute says it has to only be used in an emergency. So we need to decrease. We, we have to add more staff so that we can have a lower staff-to-client ratio. It's about helping our staff to develop positive, constructive relationships with kids. It's about helping our staff to identify when things are beginning to escalate, how do we de-escalate them verbally, um, and how do we help kids develop their own coping mechanisms. A youth can choose to go to their room and chill out on their own without being directed to do so. And other approaches that um, national experts have come in and, and given uh, the Division of Youth Corrections advice on how to develop these new strategies. And I must say that they're being implemented across the division quite successfully. That would include, I assume, the Spring Creek Juvenile Facility in Colorado Springs. There have been problems there. A whistleblower mm -hmm. told the Denver Post that the facility is plagued by assaults on staff and kids. So again, the violence that can go in both directions. The head of that place recently stepped down. There's been a lot of staff turnover, but you've added staff there, as you've said, that that's a priority. Any evidence that conditions are improving at Spring Creek? So Spring Creek has been an outlier in terms of the amount of um, aggressive behaviors that we've been seeing from kids, as, as you've outlined. Uh, we had done all of the uh, early interventions that I just mentioned, bringing in national experts, additional training, and so forth, with little success. The number of rates of fights and assault had continued at Spring Creek, which was different than what we were seeing in other facilities in the division. So what we've done is we've changed the programming at Spring Creek. It used to serve both detention, which is like jail if we were using an adult term, okay. and commitment, which is like prison if we use an adult term term again. So shorter term stays maybe versus longer term stays. And we've removed all of the longer term stay kids and placed them at other facilities. So now Spring Creek is only working on kids who are coming in, spend an average of about 15 days, get settled and transition back while they're awaiting court. Why that is that important? Us, yeah. Why, why does been, that make difference? It's been really important because it we've kept the staffing the same with a fewer number of kids and only focusing on one type of program. So our staff now... Uh, are having to uh, work with one population of kids. They can spend more time with those kids. They also, here's the important piece. When I have a committed population and a detention population, we literally have a mix of the 11-year-old kid, because I have kids from 10 to 21 age range, mm. an 11-year-old kid who's serving time because he's been skipping school mixed in with a 19-year-old gang member who's in there for homicide. 
that mix of kids does not work very effectively. And by changing the programming and focusing just on the front-end detention with lower staff ratios and new training, we think that we're going to see some positive results. And quite frankly, Ryan, we already are. Uh, We've uh, more than uh, cut in half uh, the number of aggressive behaviors uh, observed in just this past month compared at, to previous months. At that Spring Creek facility Spring in Colorado Creek. Springs. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Reggie Bika, who is the head in Colorado of the Department of Human Services. Uh, meanwhile, the federal government has been looking into problems at a Pueblo facility for people with severe disabilities. Uh, there are three state-run facilities for people who can't care for themselves, essentially. There's been a a lot of staff turnover in Pueblo as well and staff shortages. There was a highly questionable strip search of a residence a year and a half ago. Your agency says it was to check for signs of abuse. But families, including a state lawmaker who has a sister there, were outraged that no one contacted them first. The federal government wants the state to give back Medicaid money that supported the center. What is being done to improve the situation in Pueblo? I know that there have been some steps taken already, including, I think, a new a new manager there. Well, let's go back to um, what happened in 2014 and 15. Uh, February, Valentine's Day, February 2015, <clears throat> my uh, deputy comes to me and shares with me an incident that was horrific to describe, uh, where staff were scratching, using utensils to scratch into the skin of clients and creating this pretend seance thing that had happened the previous November, three months earlier. No one had reported the situation. No one had escalated it in my agency. And that was disturbing to us. So we started to to ask questions about what was going on at the regional center. Between Valentine's Day and the end of March of 2015, we had uncovered a series of very disturbing incidents where some staff, a very few number of staff, and I want to to highlight that, um, were uh, rough with clients, were failing to follow our procedures for physical interventions, were uh, abusing clients. In one case, we found someone who had sexually abused one of our clients and the director didn't terminate him. Uh, The list goes on and on of of disturbing things. And by the end of March, we, we realized that we were uncovering this stuff. It had never been elevated. It was either not reported to other authorities or marginally reported. And it got to the point where we literally didn't know at the regional center who we could trust and who was providing appropriate care to the residents there. So we brought a team of registered nurses from one of our other regional center programs and asked them to do skin checks. These were not strip search. I know that they've been categorized that way. These were trained medical professionals who were checking on the health and wellness of each of our residents at the Pueblo Regional Center. We'll say that some families have a very different perception of what what occurred and how traumatic it was. That is true. Um, uh, What I can tell you is what uh, the the folks who were there that day and were performing these wellness checks, these medical procedures, uh, identified. And what we uh, found were 10 more incidents of unexplained injuries and concerns uh, that we then uh, reported to all of the appropriate authorities and took appropriate action. We ended up putting 18 people on administrative leave. The director of the facility retired. Uh, uh, 
of those 18, all, uh, one of them came back, was cleared. Uh, the rest of them were either terminated, resigned, retired, moved on. Uh, and so we have since that time put a whole new uh, host of new policies, new practices, new oversight me- mechanisms in place. We've brought in a new director. We've hired a number of new staff. And recently I've announced that we're going to be adding an additional uh, 20 to 30 FTE new employees to the regional center so that we can Im- continue to improve the quality of care. FTE full-time equivalent employees. Yeah, thank you. You know, uh, a theme in this conversation is that you need more staff per resident, per ward. Is that easy given like the budget situation? Well, it's not easy, but it's uh, you know, the governor has been very clear with me. Uh-huh. We take care of our people first. Because he's looking at cuts in the in the coming budget, you know. Absolutely. And he also has said in previous budgets that we don't cut to uh, the last and the least. And folks who are dependent upon the regional centers have to ensure that they can get – that we can provide them the best care possible. So not only do we need enough staff, but they have to be highly trained staff. They have to be appropriately compensated. And that's what we're working on, not just at the Pueblo Regional Center, but also in Wheat Ridge and at Grand Junction. So two years ago, there were a number of lawmakers who signed a letter outlining problems in your department and calling for a change in leadership. Uh, This, again, was a letter to the governor about your department. And you said after that letter was sent that you would meet with the lawmakers who signed it to talk about their concerns. Have you been able to do that with each of those lawmakers? I met with over 60 legislators, one-on-one meetings. Um, If anything positive came out of that letter situation, it was that it caused me to sit down and have these conversations, which uh, by and large were very productive and constructive conversations. Yeah, give me an example of something that came out of them. Well, one of the things that I have done over the past year is each month I meet with the chair of our committees in both the House and the Senate. Um, just to give them a briefing on what's going on, get their perspective on issues, uh, give them heads up if something is coming down the pike. And those have been very, very positive conversations. We've met much more regularly with members of the Joint Budget Committee, either myself or members of my team, to improve communication. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Reggie Bika, who leads Human Services in Colorado. I'd like to turn to child welfare Mm -hmm. services. That division is charged with protecting abused and neglected children. Um, There have been several high-profile deaths involving abused children in recent years. And you implemented a more centralized child abuse hotline, I think last year, so that people can report problems. Is that working? It's working fantastically. Uh, we did implement a statewide child abuse and neglect reporting hotline. Because they'd been, that, what, like decentralized and kind of local before that? Or? Colorado has what we call a state-supervised county-administered human services system. Which a mouthful means the, there. <laughs> <laughs> which means the state is responsible for uh, administering programs, but it's the counties at the local level who are actually operating child welfare, child support, public assistance, and other programs every day. And so we have 64 child welfare systems, if you will, in our state. And prior to the hotline, we had 64 different ways to report. Um, And a lot of times people will want to make a report, but they don't know which county a child lives in. And but the incident happened in a different county and and they're kind of confused. The worst scenario I, I had heard before we implemented the hotline 
was a, a psychologist who called Jefferson County because and then they were told to call Denver County and then Denver County said no they'd move to Arapahoe County. We shouldn't have people who simply want to report about a child who's in harm way having to call multiple counties. So now today we have one line that folks can call to report child abuse and neglect. And we've also uh, added a whole new um, uh, public awareness campaign because we know that in Colorado, the vast majority of calls that come into our hotline are from mandatory reporters, professionals who have an obligation to report. But we know that there are neighbors, grandparents, aunt and uncles, friends of the family who have concerns about a children and we need them to call us as well so that we can engage with that family and make certain that children are safe and families are healthy. And so the call volume is up, the reports are up or what? Call volumes are up. Uh, the uh, We had 208,000 calls to the hotline last year that resulted in ninety-one, nearly 91,000 reports of child abuse and neglect that uh, the counties went out and investigated. Uh, and we think that the hotline is is working very, very well. We get good reports from counties. We get excellent reports from people who have reported to the child abuse system. And we also now have tools in place where we can improve our training. Uh, we record all of the calls that come in. We can go back and listen to them to get further information. We can train people on how to improve their call-taking ability and to get better information. It is a very strong system, one of the best in the country, quite honestly. Let's continue this discussion and on specifically the topic of child abuse in just a moment. So back with Reggie Beek, head of human services in Colorado after a break on CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're back with Reggie Bika, who leads human services in the state. Uh, he's the head of that department, which oversees, uh, is responsible for some of the most vulnerable Coloradans. And uh, one of the realities, as we talked about before the break, Reggie, of overseeing child protection services, for instance, is that the counties run so many of the mm-hmm. programs. We reached out to Arapahoe County Commissioner Sally Clark, her county has the highest number of child abuse referrals in the state. El and Paso County Commissioner Sally Clark. I'm so sorry. El, right. El Paso County Commissioner. Uh, fact-checking on the fly. Thank you, Reggie. Um, <laughs> Clark says, during your tenure, you have strengthened the partnerships between counties and states. I think that they have fought for more caseworkers for us to be able to answer calls and follow up to prevent kids from dying, uh, prevent child fatalities. So from my standpoint, it's been very collaborative in nature. So there she speaks to the collaboration. We also spoke with several people about the challenges of your job overseeing some of the most vulnerable Coloradans, and that included Dr. Richard Krugman. He's former dean of the CU School of Medicine, and he now researches child protection. And he Mm -hmm. praised your leadership. He said one of the problems he sees, though, is that these days uh, in medicine, for instance, doctors are taught to come forward with medical errors, but that the same thing isn't encouraged in child protection or in other state agencies. That's not within the culture now, and it, it is now within the culture of medical student and resident physician and nurse and pharmacist training to assiduously look at errors in systems. How could child protection workers be encouraged to come forward with the idea of improving the system? Well, I'm so glad that Dr. Krugman uh, made those comments. And I I think that uh, I share with Dr. Krugman a commitment that uh, 
in order for us to have good government, we have to be transparent about what's working and what's not working. And in human services, when things don't work the way that they should, people get hurt. Or, or me- die. Or die. And as Dr. Krugman was uh, pointing out, in medicine, it has become much more accepted that when there's an error, we want to identify the error so that we can correct it. It's a learning opportunity. It's a way to strengthen programs. In human services, it hasn't. we haven't quite gotten there. We have attempted to create a very transparent administration. We created CSTAT, which is a performance management system that puts all of our performance data, makes it available to the public, and asks them to help us uh, find ways to improve. When we identify problems like uh, we talked about in Spring Creek or the issues at the Pueblo Regional Center, many administrations, I suspect, across the country would choose to keep that quiet, keep it under the rug, and not uh, deal with it. We took a much more dramatic approach and said we're going to Share this information with the public. Be transparent. Be clear about what's not working and be aggressive about putting changes in place that are going to result in better care for the people that we're responsible to serve. How, by the way, would you say things are going at the Pueblo Regional Center, which is for those with severe disabilities? Is the, is the climate improved? Is there any sense of that? Absolutely, the climate has improved. When I look back at some of the horrible circumstances that had been going on in 2014 and 2015, that is not the case today. As I look back at the number of people who had done some really horrific things to our clients who no longer are with us today, and as I go to the Pueblo Regional Center, which I do with some frequency, and uh, visit our homes and our day programming, and I watch our staff interact with uh, the people that they're uh, providing supports and services to. Um, it It is humbling. The nurturing that folks uh, provide, the tenderness and the amount of care, the encouragement towards independence. We still have things to work on at the Pueblo Regional Center, but it is a much better, much safer environment for the folks that we care for today than it was a year and a half ago. You, you've come under fire. This has not been um, a, a smooth road as director. Why do you do this work? Hmm. Well, I came into this, um, oh, gosh, 20-some years ago. I'm a social worker by training. And uh, uh, I started out doing child abuse and neglect investigations, we called them at that time. Uh, was working in juvenile delinquency. And every day I came into work and thought, what can I do today to help make the lives of my kids and families that are on my caseload better? And I still come to work every day thinking that, what can I do today that's going to make a difference for the people of Colorado whom we serve, who've been dealt a deck of cards uh, that haven't been quite fair or just for them and need some extra supports to either get off drugs and alcohol, to overcome a serious and persistent mental illness, to cope with living with a a severe developmental disability uh, or... uh, growing up in a family with extreme poverty or the issues related to child abuse, how do we, what can I do to be open, transparent, and bring the right tools and practices in place to help their lives get better? You mentioned addiction. Very quickly before we go, are you seeing the problem with opiates and heroin in in younger people? 
We are. Uh, it's a it's a significant issue across the country and certainly in Colorado. Another area that we've focused a fair amount of attention on is prescription drug abuse mm-hmm. and the impact of both youngsters getting prescription drugs, oftentimes from their parents, that they're the old pill bottles that nobody's paying attention to, as well as the overprescription of uh, of those drugs that uh, lead to addictive behaviors. So affecting younger people as well. Uh, Reggie Bika, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you, Ryan. He leads the Colorado Department of Human Services. Coming up, a term that would confound the founding fathers, the ballot selfie. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Now to ballot selfies, not a term that appeared in any of Jefferson's writings. Why is it illegal for people to post photos of themselves with their completed ballots? Well, some people who work on election security say there are plenty of good reasons. CPR's Megan Verlee has been looking into this issue and joins me. Hi, Megan. Hey, Ryan. This law has been on the books in Colorado at least for 125 years, but it wasn't really on anyone's mind until last week when the Denver district attorney warned people that posting a ballot selfie could land them a misdemeanor. Yeah, that uh, really caught people's attention. And now the state is looking at one, possibly two lawsuits to try and overturn this law. And uh, a couple of state lawmakers are going to go after it in the next legislative session. All right. So dual approaches there. Before we get any further, I want to be really clear. Are we talking about pictures of just completed ballots or of like any ballot? No, no, no. You have to have filled out your ballot. So like I actually take a picture of my blank ballot every election cycle to use on our website. That's totally fine. It's if people can see how you voted, that's not cool. What's the deal with this law? Why is it in place? Well, uh, like you said, it is to um, it was put in place 125 years ago when there were a lot of concerns about vote buying and voter coercion. And it's there to try and protect the secrecy of people's ballots. Okay. That photo, I suppose, could be used as proof, I guess, of how you voted and uh, feed the pressure. Uh, But as you said, for the first time, the law is facing legal challenges in Colorado. It is. Opponents say it violates their freedom of speech. Um, For instance, I talked with a member of the Libertarian Party of Colorado who says that as a minor party, it's really important for their supporters to be able to tangibly show they supported for their candidate, Gary Johnson, this year, uh, as a way to try and help other people to feel comfortable with that decision. So for her, it's almost a political thing as well as a a freedom of speech thing. Yeah, one person's coercion is another person's um, pride. Pride and coaxing, right. Exactly. And so uh, this member of the Libertarian Party, she's going to file a case against the law. And then there is also a lawsuit in in the works right now with a Republican state senator and a first-time Democratic voter. All right. And then there is, as you mentioned, the effort through the state legislature uh, which has had some history, I think, at the Capitol, right? It has, actually. Democratic Representative Paul Rosenthal of Denver has introduced this bill twice so far in the past, not successfully. He says he got onto this issue because uh, he posted a picture of his own ballot a few years ago um, and, uh, you know, didn't know that that wasn't OK. And then somebody emailed me and said, hey, um, you might want to take it down. And that really caused the, me to be just really irritated that Somebody would tell me what I could do with my free speech. So Rosenthal is going to bring the bill back next year. He's hoping this controversy will aid his cause. And uh, it's already helped him find a Republican co-sponsor for the state Senate. So I expect it to have at least more legs than it's had in the past. Right. And if it's failed in the past, that means that there's some opposition, some who think that this ban is a good idea. What's their argument? Well, they say that voter coercion is still a concern, even if we don't see a lot of cases of it, and that having this ban on ballot photos, it just 
really undermine underlies the idea that ballots are secret and should remain secret. Yeah. What what is voter coercion actually look like kind of in modern day? Uh, it's pretty ugly, uh, at least according to Marilyn Marks. She's an activist who's worked on election security around the state. And she says she's been in some small rural communities where she's seen poor people, especially pressured to show their ballots to get certain types of services. And uh, what she says is that this is a problem in these very small rural elections where a few votes can have a big impact on an outcome and where there's just not a lot of outside scrutiny. I think it's harder for those of us who live in large metropolitan areas to understand the dangers that take place in small communities. I talked with Common Cause, which is another election security group, and they said that um, they're also a little afraid that if posting ballot selfies became kind of a common way to show your pride in voting, that people would feel pressured to do it. And if, say, maybe you hadn't been honest with your spouse about how you're voting, there's a lot of polling this election that says that people are not talking honestly with each other. Well, feeling pressured to show your ballot could really cause some personal strife. Hmm. Have other states dealt with this issue? They have. Uh, The Associated Press found 18 states that have similar photo bans. And lately, the courts have not been supportive of them. Uh, Judges have struck down ballot selfie bans in Indiana and New Hampshire. I think there are a couple of other states where these uh, lawsuits are in process. And you can bet that the opponents here in Colorado are going to be looking for legal precedents in those other cases. But I should say that, you know, courts, lawmakers, they do not move very quickly. So if you are a Colorado voter, your takeaway from all this is for this election, at least, you're going to have to find some way to show your electoral pride that does not involve your completed ballot. All right. This will be figured out, I suppose. Megan, thanks so much. Thank you, Ryan. CPR's Megan Verlee covers government and politics. So how do you build a road to the South Pole? Apparently with help from Silverton, the remote western town in Colorado, a mining geologist there named John Wright led a team that opened the South Pole to traffic. It traverses mountains as high as Colorado's, and it also traverses things called snow swamps, which once swallowed a bulldozer. It is only open in the Antarctic summer, which is just starting, The road remains dangerous. And John Wright is on the phone with us from Silverton. John, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. Help us envision this part of the world, which is, you know, really uninviting. I hinted at just a few things. But what else about the landscape of the South Pole made it difficult to build a 1,000-mile road there? Understood. The entire surface is composed of snow and ice. So that in itself is is unique. The views from our starting point at McMurdo were stunningly like the views of the Colorado Front Range as viewed from Denver. Huh. That that much was familiar. And uh, McMurdo, we should say, is a station that's on the coast, and the road would run from there inland to the pole. And so to, even really to call what you did a road... Um, is questionable because it's more of a passageway. It's not like you can drive a Ford Taurus on this road. Is that right? Well, that is correct. But the road's metal is made of snow, compacted snow. So 
vehicles that we use to haul cargo from the coast inland to the South Pole were rubber-belted tractors, similar to what you might see working in the agricultural fields around the, the Front Range. Huh. It, it sounds like a tremendous engineering feat. Can you describe what would go in to, to building a road like that? Yes, I, I can. Uh, first of all, there's a great deal of route planning that goes into to building the road. The terrain features that we had to, to cross were 90% unknown to us wow. uh, directly, and they included features that you've mentioned, like snow swamps. Uh, there were crevasse fields. These are cracks in the, in the surface formed in the ice that are often hidden for being bridged over with snow. Those are, are deadly pitfalls. Uh, there is a, a single passage up through the Transantarctic Mountains that separates the continent into two halves with South Pole on the other side. Uh, further up on the polar plateau where South Pole lies, there is a vast field of hard wind-sculpted snow forms that is exceedingly rough ground to travel on. And finally, just outside South Pole itself, there's yet another snow swamp. This is region of extremely soft snow. Uh, your tractors will bog down in it, and the sled loads you're carrying will, will bog you down until you get a good compacted snow surface to run on. So I would say that it is a road. It's a road, however, made of snow. Made of snow, and you talk about it having deadly pitfalls. My, that has been borne out just in the last few days. Uh, a climate scientist from Scotland died when he fell into a crevasse I wonder what your reaction was to that news. Well, I knew him, of course, and some of his work that he had done was instrumental in our early route planning efforts for our, our own four-year project. Um, we were saddened when Gordon Hamilton, associated with the University of Maine, uh, was working out in a belt of crevasses that we knew about uh, called the Shear Zone. This lies just 25 miles south of McMurdo, and in order to get on with the route, one has to cross the shear zone. It is an unavoidable hazard. Hmm. This is a region where uh, the surface looks completely smooth and flat and white, uh, but you could be traveling along the surface and step onto one of these snow bridges that bridges over the crack, and the bridge might collapse under your weight, and down into the crack you go. Mm. It's the cold version, I suppose, of quicksand. And um, you're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. We are speaking with a Silverton man who helped build really the first road across Antarctica, a thousand-mile snow road that led from McMurdo to the Pole. His name is John Wright. And we thought we'd speak to him as the Antarctic summer is here. Uh, that is when the road is open. And describe for me what daily life was like building this road, uh, which, which I should say was a way to get around having to do a lot of flying in of, of equipment and people. Uh, because with this road now open, 
There are far fewer flights and a lot less fuel consumption. But building the road, what was a day like? In the first year of the project, uh, we went out to this region of crevassing called the shear zone, and we forged our way across the, the shear zone, going, heading first into it with ground-penetrating radar to detect the cra- cracks and crevasses that were lurking under the snow surface. Hmm. Once we found one of those, we would explode a hole into the bridge and then stuff the hole with snow so that where there was once a void, there was now a plug of snow. Now, finding snow in Antarctica is not a difficult proposition, (laughs) but finding snow in the middle of a crevasse field that you can safely maneuver up to the brink of the crevasse and stuff it into the crevasse, now that's that's difficult. Uh, Whenever we were at work in the shear zone, we always... We were always on edge with the proximity of of mission failure, uh, and so we were we were very delicate and methodical about our work. Once we stuffed a crevasse full of snow, we could drive over it with our bulldozers and go on looking for the next crevasse. Now, this belt of crevasses is about. 125 miles long, we crossed that belt at a point where it was about three miles across, and in the process of making that crossing, we found and mitigated uh, 32 crevasses until we were home free on the Ross Ice Shelf. Once we made the Ross Ice Shelf, which is a floating mass of glacial ice, uh, we were pretty much home free for the next 600 miles. I understand that there were people who told you you couldn't do this, that this really wasn't possible. Well, Edmund Hillary did not wish us luck in our endeavor. Uh, But on the other hand, it had never been done before, and we went at our task not with any visions of stupid heroics or grandstanding or or glory. We just went about our task to see if we could pioneer a road that was free of risk and repeatable. Uh, We succeeded after four years of effort in doing that. And in so doing, we relieved South Pole Station of its dependency on airlift for all its material and supply demands. Just briefly, before we go, there's an American flag from Silverton that's now flying, I think, at the South Pole. Because of you, this was a flag from the American Legion Hall. It became a pretty important symbol of your mission. Uh, what, what's the story, just briefly? Yeah, um, that is, I was in charge of the project. At some point, I realized that our project was without an American flag. So I went to the local American Legion, talked to the Legion commander, and asked him for the loan of the flag. Uh, He gave me the flag to carry down to South Pole for each of the four years of our effort. I would return the flag to the American Legion on my return from that particular season's work, give a report to the community uh, about where the flag had been and what it had seen. And at the end, uh, I presented the flag to the American Legion where it retired it 
Um, and I would add that the, the particular symbolic significance of that flag was that it was the same flag that flew at half-staff in Memorial Park on September the 11th, 2001. Hmm. So the flag rode to the South Pole and back, was enshrined in a case in the American Legion, and then when the Legion had to sell its Legion Hall, it sought a uh, permanent home for some of its portable property. I worked with several agencies to see if they would be interested in receiving it. And indeed, it is now housed at the South Pole. That's correct. It traveled back one more time to the South Pole, and it's it's housed in the in the brand new station that has been built at South Pole. A symbol of the connection between Silverton and Antarctica. That is John Wright, mining and geological consultant in Silverton. He directed the building of a snow route in Antarctica. And he's the author as well of Blazing Ice, pioneering the 21st century's road to the South Pole. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There's an old saw that all politics is local. Well, that's borne out on your ballot this year, with all sorts of city and countywide questions to answer, from a tax on sugary sodas to municipal broadband. Sam Mamet heads the Colorado Municipal League. We're going to talk about some of these local measures. Hi, Sam. Good morning. How are you, Ryan? Doing well. Nice to see you. Nice Internet see service you. is on a lot of ballots, including Arvada and Golden in the metro area, Palisade and Parachute on the western slope. What would these measures do exactly? Well, this is a very interesting aspect of the ballot coming up because in 2005, the legislature prohibited uh, local governments, counties, and municipalities from engaging in providing broadband service. Unless. Unless there was voter approval. And so since 2005, we've had uh, voters in 46 communities across the state approve these questions, never with anything less than a 70% yes vote. Wow. So we have another yes so we have another 18 on the ballot uh, on the 8th, and these would, if they pass, and I think they all will, um, will direct their municipality, their city council, their town, to explore broadband, either Why directly yeah. or through some third-party provider. Okay, so there could be a vendor or right, something. exactly. Why is there such interest in that subject, you think? I think it represents what this election for me is all about. People focus on the top of the ticket, and that's certainly important, but the real action is all the way down at the bottom of the ticket, the local government questions, because this is where problems get solved. And in this case, there are a lot of communities whose citizens feel that their current level of service is inadequate, and they're turning to their local government, county, or municipality to solve those problems. And this is the relevancy of these kinds of questions. Is it fair, though, for all these local governments to be getting into business against private enterprise? That's a great question. And uh, that's why the vast majority are entering into agreements with a third-party provider, vendor, instead of doing it themselves. We have three examples currently, Glenwood Springs, Cortez, and Longmont, who are providing the service either on their own or through a vendor. In the case of Longmont, they own their own electric system, so they're running it through the electric system. But that's, a, that's an issue that uh, does come up. 
But thus far, in every one of these questions that have been posed, they've passed with never less than 70 percent approval. And the idea isn't just that you can watch Netflix shows faster. Uh, It has a lot to do with attracting more business, as as we've covered on this program. Absolutely, Ryan. The pressure comes a lot from economic development interest groups. A lot of marijuana questions on local ballots this election year. Major themes you're seeing? Well, you know, when Amendment 64 was passed several years ago, it uh, granted to the voters in counties and uh, municipalities across the state the right uh, to decide whether or not they wanted to have the sale of recreational marijuana in their communities. And so this year we have uh, a number with uh, these questions uh, on the ballot. Uh, We've uh, had um, uh, over 200 of these questions posed to local voters since Amendment 64 passed. What are some of the communities on this year's ballot? Well, we have uh, Del Norte down in the San Luis Valley, Englewood in the Denver metro area on the West Slope, Palisade, down south, Pueblo, uh, with uh, questions on the ballot to uh, allow for or not allow for recreational sales. Right, to say no to it. Right. Um, Pueblo sort of reconsidering what's happening right, there. Right, that's correct. And quite an interesting question about uh, where pot can be consumed in Denver. Yes, indeed. This is a unique question. Uh, I don't believe that any other community has uh, focused on whether or not there could be uh, private clubs where uh, where you can use recreational marijuana. If this passes in Denver, I think we may see some discussion on this in the General Assembly when they convene in January. How so? Making Well, I making think there's this... an interest in among a number of lawmakers to take a look at uh, whether or not private clubs should be authorized to sell recreational marijuana. So there may be a discussion on this. Because right now, essentially, the only place you can do that is in your own home. That's correct. Someone else's. That's right. We should point out that there are some restrictions in this proposed measure in Denver. A business would have to apply for a license from the city, get approval from at least one registered neighborhood group. And it wouldn't be that people could just light up and smoke because you have the whole question of the indoor... Right, Eric, correct. You know, so it's, I suppose it's vaping well. and edibles. Mm-hmm. But you think that this could be the, the start of something bigger? Uh, I think we might see it in some other communities, yeah. Okay. Um, sugary sodas. This is in Boulder, correct? Yes, that's in Boulder. It's it's unique among our communities. I don't think we have had any community in the state, perhaps Telluride, I'm not sure about that, that's considered this. And this would be a two-cent uh, per ounce uh, tax on various uh, sugar-sweetened beverages, and it would be earmarked the proceeds for health promotion, food education, nutritional programs. Does this remind you of anything in the past? I mean, I know that you haven't seen exactly this, but... This is a new one. Uh-huh. Uh, we may see some other communities consider this if it passes in Boulder, because there's certainly been a lot of interest in this nationally. There are uh, various cities across the country that have uh, considered this. And across multiple counties, a question of arts funding. Yes. Well, this is an interesting one because uh, we not only consider issues that affect us in our own backyard, but as it affects us in the region and the uh, scientific and cultural facilities district here in the Denver metro areas, considering uh, uh, a tax for the continuation of uh, promotion of arts and culture regionally. And this uh, program in the Denver region is a model nationally. 
And there has been a lot of reporting on the Scientific and Cultural Facilities mm-hmm. District by our own Corey Jones. You can mm-hmm. find that as a part of our voter guide, which is put together at cprnews.org. Just a few seconds here, Sam. Anything else stick out locally? Well, I think at the uh, end of the day, for me, what's important in this election, it's all about problem solving. All of these uh, issues represent uh, a desire by our communities throughout the state uh, to look at the future and how do we want our communities to grow and uh, prosper. And that's uh, why I think these local government elections, which are all nonpartisan in nature, are so vitally important uh, and um, worth looking at. Yes, but that doesn't mean that politicians don't get involved. But uh, thanks for being with us, (laughs) Sam Sam Mamet, Executive Executive Director of the Colorado Municipal League. We talked about local ballot measures this election. And that's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us.